0: Hello and welcome to The Price of Football The show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game With me, Kevin Day and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire It's Questions Day, Kieran So the big question is, we all want to know Did you have a lovely time in that there, Athens?
1: I had an absolutely fantastic time um it was there was sun, which you wouldn't have liked. <laughs> um there was uh fantastic food, a uh, little bit of tear gas, a little bit of little bit of bifters. <laughs> uh the the most racist taxi driver I've ever met in my life. Yeah, you know, it, oh it was my Lord. It, it, it had everything. It had everything. Uh the we we went to the Parthenon. Uh, didn't go to the Fat Boy Slim gig after the match because oh, well. that, that was one am to three am. I think I'm a little bit too old for tapping me toes at that time of morning. And uh, the the original Olympic Stadium from 1896. I, I did a quick ten yard sprint. I was, wow. I
0: was just to see whether I've still got it. And yeah, it was a wonderful time. Thank you very much. You could have, I believe they had hopscotch, didn't they, in the first Olympics? You could have done that. They had all sorts <laughs> of bizarre they? sports. I don't know <laughs> if they had hopscotch, but they certainly had some bizarre sports. So, the tear gas, Kieran, you said you went to eat. Was the, was the tear gas part of the football experience, or was there some, this, like a Heston Blumenthal restaurant, you had cold octopus octopus cold <laughs> with a, a tear gas jus? Um, no, I mean, at the, at the end of the match, uh, I ended up.
1: Because I'm a South London boy, I ended up in the Ike end of uh, in, in the Ike seats rather than in Brighton because uh, it was the only way I could get a ticket for the Baroness. So, uh, so I was in with the Greek fans who who you know they knew they knew I was Brighton. They were absolutely fine with me, um, and everybody was was friendly. You know, you you be respectful. Of course. Um, I think under those circumstances, I didn't celebrate the goal or anything. But they, 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 they knew who I was uh, from, from, yeah, accent and, and also the, the British teeth that I possessed. <laughs> um, but uh, d- d- no trouble. At the end, a few of them you know, shook hands and so on. That was all, that was all fine. Uh, a few of our lot, for, for a reason, if, if I'd travelled, and let's face it, it is a long, long journey to get there. If I'd travelled all that distance, spent all of that money, I wouldn't have spent 90 minutes not watching the football but instead wait, making, making hand gestures oh, Lord, to no. the people uh, and, and I just I just don't get this uh, and then at the end some of our lot decided there was there was a sort of there was a partition between you know, one of these Perspic partitions so they decided to start hammering on that to prove that just how hard they are and um, some of the ike fans got a bit arsy. so there was a few few bits of yeah uh, you know, Fifty-year-old men thinking that they're auditioning for Green oh, Street. Yeah, uh, so, so yeah, it's, it's, just, it's just just embarrassing. But you're always going to get dickheads, uh, and and yeah, it's a perfect opposition.
0: Let, let's face it, Kieran. There's no point going abroad unless you're not going to remind the foreigners that they are foreign, Kieran. Really, even though that yes, even though in exactly. their own country technically they're not. Some somebody made a very good point to me on Thursday night when I was doing comedy moaning about. Oh, one day, one day it'll be Palace out there playing in Greece, and someone says, well, it's probably for the best because you'd get pissed and promised to give the Elgin marbles back. <laughs> <laughs> Which is exactly Sensitive the sort of thing subject. I would do. Sensitive subjects. Yeah, well, Yeah, well, i, I I'm at the risk of annoying our producer who doesn't like us to be political about these things. Give them back. Yes. are <laughs> quite capable of looking after themselves. <laughs> now. Well, that was the excuse there was, well, oh, yeah, the, the Greeks only leave them behind, wouldn't they? They will go to a restaurant, get distracted, and leave them somewhere. <laughs> Anyway, on with the, the questions, Karen, but there's a bit of news beforehand, of course, and that is that the the Everton Appeal has come a little quicker than I think a lot of people were expecting. Do we know how the Everton Appeal will work in? is it Will they be saying, look, we did nothing wrong, we want all our 10 points back, or will they be saying, look, yes, we acknowledge, as we did in the, the investigation, that, that there were anomalies, but this punishment is simply too high?
1: I, I think they will go down the latter route. Um, In their initial submission, Everton said, based on our calculations, we believe believe that we are under the uh, limit. Subsequently, they said, yeah, okay, we we, we take on board a few of the things um, from the Premier League. So we accept that we believe we're only £7 million above the limit and therefore the the tariff is too high. Uh, I mean, they're... There has been further communication between Andy Burnham, the mayor of Manchester, but also an Everton fan, mm. um, and the Premier League. I think he's he's been going on. We're we'll, we'll trying and to get Andy on the show to to articulate his views, um, because Sky um, decided to pull his interview, and which they're perfectly entitled to, of course. Um, yeah. And the, the the Premier League I think has fairly robustly defended its position. Um, however. Uh, what, what the Premier League has done, and, and these are things which I wasn't aware of, apparently in I think in in twenty twenty there was an agreement, uh, or certainly a discussion at Premier League uh, to say that the the aim of sanctions would be a points deduction, uh, and I can understand the logic of that. And they said, well, Everton at the time said, yeah, we're okay with that. Uh, yeah, if, if that's been minuted, I think that's good evidence one way or the other. Um, and also somebody who I can only describe as um, the the secret executive um, sent me an article um, dated the 8th of February, 2013, um, where the Premier League says its clubs will be punished with a points deduction if they breach new spending controls. And oh. there were comments from Richard Masters and so on. Now, you know, again... Yeah, part of the Ever- Everton defence will be that if you take a look at the Premier League handbook, the, the tariff is – I think uh, they would describe it as open-ended, i.e. the commission can utilise whatever uh, means it thinks it's appropriate um, – the opponents of it would say it's vague because there is no guidance as such. So I think what we will now be doing is, is that both sides will be hardening their position. They will be using evidence. I think Andy Burnham has asked for uh, the, the full statement that Richard Masters gave to the commission to, to be publicised in respect of... The, the proposed tariff by the Premier League. Lots of people in the, what you might refer to as the Everton camp have said, well, if, if we take a look at the punishment, it's a 10-point deduction. And if you do your calculations based on the, the Premier League proposed tariff, it would be six points plus one point for every uh, 5 million uh, above the uh, allowable limit. And that would come to 10 points as well. This mm. is this is quite a spectacular coincidence, is this evidence that the Premier League were putting pressure on the commission. The the Premier League will also say, well, actually, we'd ask for a 12-point deduction uh, independent of this Mm. as well. So uh, there's lots of finger-pointing. I think the most important thing is that the appeal is held very, very quickly because – and and my my personal view is that regardless of whether it's a 10-point deduction or not, Everton are a good enough team to avoid relegation. Mm. I don't know whether you saw the match last night, but they were clearly yeah, yeah. far better than Forest, for example. Uh, but yeah, you know, that's, that's a separate issue. Um, clubs are working out their January transfer budgets. And I think having a degree of certainty and clarity is, is beneficial from a sporting point of view. Um, do I expect the decision to be made by the end of this month? No. But, um, yeah, the longer it drags on, the, the worse it becomes, I think, for not just things such as transfer strategy, but individual match strategy. Yeah, we've said this before. Sometimes you go into a match saying, well, yeah, if we nick a point, we're happy. Whereas other matches, we need to win this one, lads. And having an uncertain uh, 10-point deduction with regards to Everton uh, certainly has an impact upon those uh, operational decisions.
0: Yeah, we're recording this on Sunday morning, so I'm very much in the, if we nick a point, it will be cartwheel time. That'll get me through to Christmas at that point today. A couple of things, Kieran. First of all, I hope we're keeping our secret executive in more salubrious circumstances than we keep the rest of our secret informers, somewhere in a shed on a beach in Sussex, I understand, Kieran. Um, Can you remind people who maybe didn't listen to the last couple of pods why that Sky interview with Andy Burnham was... Pulled and also, why? Notwithstanding, he's an Everton fan. Why is the mayor of Manchester getting so exercised about what's happened to Everton? Is, is this in a personal basis, or because it has raised a few eyebrows that Andy Burnham is is kind of going into battle for a, a team in a city that most people in Manchester don't get along with football wise?
1: Mm. Yeah, I think if we answer that second question first he has said i am communicating on a personal capacity right okay. and and that's fine but he's then put it he's then publicised it on his twitter account which you know it doesn't say andy burnham mayor of manchester it does say andy burnham but clearly he also posts things in relation to his position as uh mayor of manchester but yeah i am a big andy burnham fan Yeah, i was yeah, we I, I was, I was, I was uh, very impressed with him uh, back in back in the day when he when he was you know one, one stage running to be the leader of the Labour Party and so on and as you know I'm not party political um, but he he seems to uh, be an intelligent guy making intelligent capable of making intelligent decisions which you can't say about everybody uh, in politics um, so so that's that's the second issue um, and I've now forgotten your first question because I'm an old man and I've got the memory of a goldfish You can just repeat that first one.
0: Well, I, I, it's only because I wrote it down that I can remember what it was, Kieran, as it, it occurred to me, as, <laughs> as I'd be in the same boat. Um, why Why was that interview with Sky pulled? Well, the the official reason was that um,
1: it was uh, Manchester United versus Everton. It's a big match. There were lots of other people to interview, and they just felt that it was a lower-priority topic to cover or lo- a okay. lower-priority person. The unofficial view is that... Uh, the Premier League is in the position in which it's allocating the domestic TV rights from 2024 onwards. Um, And therefore Sky, as one of the potential bidders doesn't want to do anything to upset the Premier League. And and that's, that's, that's a cynical view. That's certainly a view which has been expressed to me by some senior people. Um, other people of, of other views. Sky will say, yeah, we are, we are completely independent and you know, we assume that the Premier League will, will give the TV rights to the, the biggest bidders and we're going to put in a very competitive bid. So, um, yeah, the, the Premier League can be a little bit hissy at times, uh, certainly in my, my own experience of you know, when they decided to use the Institute of Economic Affairs as their attack dog for <laughs> anybody who's <laughs> sort of connected uh, with, with the fan-led review. I did find that a bit strange, to put it mildly.
0: Well, talk of the fan-led review, Kieran, brings me to my second point, because we have questions about FFP today and about the independent regulator. But there have been journalists this week in a a desperate attempt to discredit the fan-led review in every possible way they can, are using the Everton situation to do just that by pointing out that the only Premier League... Person who, who really took part in the Tracy Crouch found led review was the person who was the CEO of Everton at the time. They were um, supposedly making these financial uh, errors or misdemeanors, or whatever. So that that seems to me an odd stick to beat the regulator with, but it's it, it's an indicator of how desperate some of the some of the newspapers, and we know which ones they are, are to avoid any notion of an independent regulator in football.
1: Yeah, there's very much a policy of deny, delay, discredit, and deflect um, uh, being employed by by the Premier League. I, I think the, the, the somewhat ins- the insidious thing that I find is that why are we not seeing the big six clubs um, come forward and express the views? Because what they're doing instead is that is they're using the likes of Steve Parish and Paul Barber and uh, the chief executives of the smaller clubs deliberately. Because they know that if they used uh, you know, somebody from Manchester United or Liverpool, people go, oh, hold on, you you were in, in favour of effectively abandoning the rest of football by taking control of it under Project Big Picture in the Super League. So I, I just find the, the, the coordinated approach um, di- disappointing. And also, the Premier League is not, it's not going to be affected by 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 the white paper i i can't understand the only the only issue that they've got with it is that they know that if it does come in they will have to distribute more money to the um to the efl to you know to, to, to spread the money around a little bit more uh, generously but it's it, it's 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 an ever-growing pie you know so you know slicing slicing the pieing giving a little bit more to the EFL isn't actually going to be uh, a significant financial hit for Premier League clubs. Uh, I, I just can't understand the the extent of the opposition. I mean, the only thing is, is that if you don't have an independent regulator, then the offer, which is presently on the table from the Premier League, would simply be withdrawn. Um, and then they'd use bully boy tactics as they, they've done in the past. Uh, you know, the reason why the elite player performance plan was was approved by the clubs in the EFL is that the Premier League threatened to take away solidarity payments unless the, the EFL clubs caved in. And they like that power. They, they like the ability to, to bully uh, the other elements of football into uh, what's best for 20 clubs, which I, I don't, yeah, and I'm, I'm not saying this if Brighton, because Brighton are in the Premier League. I'd have said the same when we were in the EFL, yeah, to which no doubt we will return
0: one day, of course. Yeah, I, I, Fingers crossed, Kieran. Yeah, I I nearly missed that opportunity then. And I don't want to dwell on this, Kieran, because we we have some really good questions to get to. But also a couple of the, um, I suppose you would describe them as opposition journalists hinting this week that FIFA will not be happy if the independent regulator were to take over because FIFA wants the FAs of each country to be running football. And clearly the independent regulator will be taking over the FAs job which is not it's simply again it's a willful misunderstanding of what the role of the independent regulator will be doing yeah yeah
1: it's spectacular ignorance and as I say deny deflect discredit um the the independent regulator will have nothing to do with the running of the England football team of course yeah we, we already have government interference in football in the sense that you can't take a pint of beer onto the terraces or into your seat that is that is government legislation impacting upon football now it happens to be legislation which I'm quite happy to, to agree with, because again, having been to a couple of European matches and seen the dickhead's day out response to scoring a goal, I, I don't particularly want to get covered in cheap lager um, no. when 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 you score. So it's uh, it, yeah, it's it's it, it's a bit juvenile. Um, there there is there is an adult debate to be had and it's not being it's not taking place because we we live in a world in which you know cheap headlines and
0: and churlish churlish remarks seem to be the order of the day well i'm going to add to the adult debate here and by speculating as to where prince William gets the time to to do all his fa work when he's (laughs) clearly got other things to do at the moment it's too busy reviewing books to do all that, all those committees he has to sit on, and the FA. First question, Kieran, is one on FFP, and it comes from Andrew Carruthers. and it's an indication, Kieran, that no matter how much we talk about FFP, we we never get to the bottom of it because there's there's always another question. And Andrew Carruthers' question is, in general, what class is as income in terms of FFP? But more specifically, says Andrew, is interest earned on money in the bank classed as income? If so, what would stop PIF loaning Newcastle £2 billion interest-free to sit in an account collecting interest and boosting their spending power? Right,
1: Andrew. The start point for the, the PSR calculations is the profit before tax in the audited accounts of the club. Or even the unaudited accounts of the club. And then you make appropriate adjustments for you know, what we describe as, as virtue spending, infrastructure, women's team, academy, um, community schemes, and so on. And then there are specific adjustments in respect of COVID, because we're in a you know still in a post-COVID environment, and, and so on. So theoretically, interest earned um, would be included in those calculations. And if we take a look at the position of Chelsea Football Club, Chelsea borrowed around about £1.5 billion pounds from some Russian bloke whose name I've forgotten. Um, but um, that, that money could have been put into the bank. Instead, it was it was used to, to sign players. You know, Chelsea, Chelsea lost an awful lot of money under uh, Abramovich. So could PIF lend the money interest-free and then... Newcastle United uh, put it into an, a high-interest bearing account. The simple answer is yes. What would the response to that be? Yeah, as we have seen, there are, you know, recently there there are monthly meetings of chief executives of Premier League clubs, and they would simply say, "We're going to introduce a new rule: interest earned would be excluded." So it 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 would be you know the classic whack-a-mole approach taken uh, as as new schemes are derived um there is the opportunity for other clubs in the Premier League to effectively veto them and remember we had that decision taken last week with regards to related party transactions which went against the, the Premier League so it would it would need seven clubs to vote against um being able to put billions of pounds into a bank account uh to to circumvent ffp um i don't think that there are seven teams that would would vote against it based on the present makeup of, of the Premier League but never say never
0: mm. you're you're forgetting quite a lot today Kieran are you sure some of that octopus you had ceviche in Athens wasn't marinated in Retsina beforehand it's, it's most unlike you Kieran Steve Lamack and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart
1: Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast, all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager, or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon.
0: Our next question, Kieran, comes from Barclay Webster. Uh, and, and producer guys discourage... What a great name. Producer guys discourage me from commenting on people's names because you, you <laughs> don't know how sensitive they are. But Barclay Webster, I can't... I can't let that one go by, I, he may have done. Somebody did. But it's uh, Barclay-Webster surely was a... If he wasn't a mate of Fred Astaire, I really... You can't, you can't imagine. Barclay-Webster's a tap dancer from the 30s, isn't he? A debonair suave. Apologies, Barclay, if you're neither of those things. <laughs> um, but he has a good question, Barclay. And Barclay says, if and when the proposals in the government's white paper on regulation become a reality... Do we know where they would apply in the UK? Would some of it only apply in England due to relevant areas being devolved to the administrations in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland? And if the proposers are mainly focused on England, how would this work for Welsh clubs playing in the Premier League and the EFL, which is a subject we'll be coming back to? Um, brackets, on a similar note, how would Berwick Rangers be affected given they are based in England but play in the Scottish Lowland League? Close bracket. So this is essentially it's a very interesting question. Are we only talking about the the English pyramid here, Kieran? And are we talking about the whole pyramid? Are we talking about the Premier League and the EFL only? If if we take a look at the white paper and the proposals, it
1: covers the first five tiers of the English game. So that would be the Premier League, uh, Championship, League One and League Two, and the National League. It wouldn't apply to National League North or National League South or anything below that. And it wouldn't apply to the, the principalities, you know, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland um, and so on. Um, so it, so it, it is actually quite a narrow focus. Uh, certainly some, some commentators have said, is there a case for expanding the regulator's influence in terms of things such as the licence and going below the National League? But, you know, that decision has been made. I think they feel that the compliance costs for uh, clubs going further down the pyramid would would be quite onerous. And some of the issues that we see wouldn't necessarily apply. Although, you know, we we were talking about Nuneaton Borough um, in Thursday's show. And there's things happening there which are making me increasingly twitchy uh, with regards to where the ownership is going at that particular club. So, you know, it, it... Every club is is worth preserving is is my view, but that's you know that's that's a view in a personal capacity, of course. Um, as far as the Welsh clubs playing in the Premier League and the EFL and Berwick Rangers, um, because they are playing in the Premier League or in the EFL, they would be therefore under the uh, under the scrutiny of the regulator, um, because otherwise it wouldn't be fair. You know, if, if we're going to have a set of financial rules being applied and for want of a better phrase, the the equivalent of Ofsted being able to go in and look at a club's books, it would be pretty cheesed off if you know if, if, if you know Chester it applied to them if they, if they were in the National League, but uh, and, and it didn't apply to Wrexham or it applied to Bristol City and not to Cardiff City. So, it, it, in order to have consistency, as part of the deal of, of playing in the Premier League or the EFL, you have to comply with its regulatory bodies, which would include the regulator mm. uh, set by the government.
0: You mentioned Dunedin Borough there, Kieran. We we discussed it in our last news pod, but the news had only just broken as we went. As we went to air. That sounds makes us sound much more glamorous and grown up than we actually are. Before we started recording, essentially. So, uh, are there any updates on that Dunedin Borough story in the last couple of days? You can share.
1: Well, you know, I, as you know, um, Company's House is my friend. Um, Indeed, and it 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 the, it the ping doesn't ding every day uh, in terms <laughs> of in terms of my little bell I've got on my phone. But um, on Friday, it started pinging an awful lot in respect of. Uh, uh, oh, I the reason the reason why I'm looking out the window somewhat circumspectly at present is that the the baroness has as uh being being very uh community minded is presently filling the uh the community gritter um because because we because we live in the middle of nowhere um and as as is the, as as tends to be the case um you know we we live in a we live in a, a little estate um only four people have uh have joined her to uh, to help fill the community grits, it has been icy recently, and uh, the council don't don't come down our road, um, and it's it's piddling down with rain, and she's just walked past the window with the shovel, um, and and is carrying a sack of gris. and she's just given me a few hand signals, which might indicate <laughs> that, <laughs> that I'm not in the good books at present, um, but back to Nuneaton Borough. Um The club appeared to have been taken over by three or four individuals in a company called DA Capital um, earlier in the week, which which we referenced uh, on on Thursday's show. But um, then that seemed to unravel itself on Friday. And I'm trying to get a little bit closer to the bottom of this. Um, So we're not sure who owns the club, what are the implications in terms of where the club's going to be playing, its fixtures and so on. Um, so uh, I'll I'll try and do a bit more ferreting um, if uh, if I'm still alive uh, by the time of the uh, recording of the Thursday show.
0: <laughs> I, I believe in your part of the world, Kieran, uh, leftover couscous makes a handy resp- a substitute for gritting, uh, more responsible as well. Um, I like the fact the council doesn't the council doesn't come down your street, which is exactly what happened for the first. Twelve years of your life in Bermondsey, but for very different reasons. The council yes. didn't come down your street in those days, <laughs> and also that's a great expression as well. I can imagine many middle-aged men going to the GP. The GP saying, "What? What? What's exactly the problem?" Well, I, I can't really put my finger on it, but all I can say is the ping doesn't ding every day anymore. <laughs> oh my god! Um, at, Daniel Powell has a question, and at, at, at the moment. Our listeners, along with many other people in football, seem to be obsessed with how much the Glazers are going to make out of selling Manchester United. And Daniel Powell has this question. In terms of the Glazer family selling their stake in Manchester United, what proportion of the price would they receive? For example, if a £5 billion offer is accepted for the club, would they only receive 69% of that £5 billion? because 31% of the club has been sold, floated, on the New York Stock Exchange?
1: Yes, uh, the reason why there is a lack of white smoke coming from Old Trafford is exactly with what uh, Daniel is referring to. We don't know who is going to be selling the shares to Sir Jim Ratcliffe. Um, I think originally the intention was for the Glazer family only to be uh, in a position to sell shares to him. And. Manchester United being a traded in New York has some benefits in, in the sense that the club's trying to reposition itself as, a, as an entertainment stroke tech company rather than a sports vehicle and therefore increase its value. Um, and it, it's, it's more persuasive, I think, if it's, if it's registered in New York. The downside of being registered in New York is, is we know America is a very litigious society. Um, and despite – if you go to Manchester United's own constitution – it actually says that the Glazer family may make decisions, which is in their best interest and is not in the best interest of shareholders as a whole. Um, they actually acknowledge that that might be the case. But some of these shareholders who own significant number of shares have said, yeah, we ain't happy with these proposals and we will sue unless we are also given the opportunity to sell some of our shares. So what I suspect will be the case. Is that Sir Jim will buy twenty five percent of the company, and that will be perhaps in the ratio of sixty nine to thirty one in in terms of uh who's allowed to sell shares to him but we'll we'll have to wait and see it it, it has gone ridiculously quiet though uh, which you know, there's no reason for that to be the case deals you know when you when you've got accountants and lawyers and bankers um you know, working 24 hours a day and charging their clients 28 hours a day for the work that they're doing. There's no reason why a deal can't be hammered out. Um, I, I can't make out why there is this delay. I don't think it's in the best interests of uh, certainly of Manchester United fans. Because if, if shares are sold, but also shares are issued, um, then Manchester United could have a more competitive budget. In January, one of the reasons why Manchester United's been restricted to uh, having to having some loan signings, as well as signing some, shall we say, players that haven't necessarily delivered in line with expectations, is because you're only allowed to lose 15 million pounds under the FFP rules, and then you can top that up with a further 90 million in terms of injections from the owners. And of course, the Glazers famously have only taken money out of Manchester United and never put any money in.
0: Mm. This this takeover was supposed to be done and dusted in a week, if you remember, Kieran. One round of bids, immediate sale afterwards, and here we are, many many months later. Kieran, you often talk about a question um, being a can of worms. This next question is opening a can of worms whilst negotiating a minefield and holding up a metal golf club during a thunder and lightning storm. Um, it comes from it comes from Derek Shea. I don't think we've got time to answer it in, in depth. But it comes from Derek Shea, and it's a question we have been asked uh, before, and it's a question that takes a lot of answering. Basically, Derek says, why are Welsh teams allowed in the English leagues, but not Scottish teams? And it's, I mean, the answer is historical initially, Kieran, isn't it?
1: Yes. Um, and what's this got to do with football finance? I think this is a much broader Uh, question and issue but Derek uh, my response would be is that if we take if we if we go back to the uh, 19th century we go to sort of the the beginnings of the professionalism of football Um, we had the the English FA um, setting up a professional competition and we also had the Scottish Football Association setting up professional football in Scotland as well with professional leagues and competitive leagues. And that wasn't the case in Wales. So therefore, the, the big cities in Wales, the likes of Swansea and Cardiff and so on, um, they signed an agreement, uh, yeah, and we're going back yeah, we're going back 100 years or so, with the English FA, which would allow um, Welsh clubs to play in England. Now, there was no such contract signed between uh, England and Scotland, it's fair to say the the English and Scotland weren't necessarily the best of pals, um, and also that there was that sense of uh, you know we, we know from historically when whenever Scotland had beaten England, and you and I are old enough to remember the home internationals from the nineteen seventies and so on, some of the, the post match celebrations were were exuberant um, from Scottish fans. So um, it, it's partly due to the lack of having a professional. League in Wales, which would have allowed the likes of Swansea and Cardiff to to compete. Um, the SPFL has, or the equivalent of the SPFL, has been professional for many leagues, and it's 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 more of a historical anomaly as much as anything else. You know, and, and of course, yeah, we always bring up because it's a uh, it's FA Cup draw, FA Cup third round draw, which I still get excited about. I'm sure you do too. Um, so you know, we always have yeah. back to. Nineteen twenty-six, twenty-seven, when uh, when Cardiff City famously became the only club to take the uh, the, the FA Cup out of England.
0: Mm. Yeah, it, it is a very long. It, it is it is financial, Kieran. In a way, I think every question is is financial and political. Really, that, uh, that, yeah, the, the finances come into the fact that the, the you know the Welsh the Welsh league now would rather see the, the clubs playing in, playing in Wales for the benefit of their own finances. And there are reasons why the Welsh clubs playing in England choose to remain within the pyramid. And we have seen you know, the recent history of Newport County, which we haven't got time to go into, would indicate how upset the Welsh FA can be with those clubs who still persist in playing in England. it, it Essentially, in the... 50s 60s and 70s FIFA started to get arsey with Welsh football because they were wondering why Wales had a football team and a vote on the FA on the FIFA council at the time but had no league which is why the 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 Welsh football league came into being and I'm sure there were people who will correct that but that's essentially but you're right it's essentially a historical anomaly for back in the day there was no Welsh league for the for those clubs to to take part in but the politics of, of Anglo-Welsh football are very sensitive down there, and, and understandably so. Um, and if, if anybody from any of those Welsh clubs or from the Welsh FA would like to get in touch, we'll happily discuss it. Now, our next question, Kieran, comes from L. Robert. And in brackets, producer guy has put no first name, just the initial PG. Because obviously, I, I think producer guy worries that we would go, what's the matter with Why is it? What's he done? He's obviously just decided not to put the whole name down, but producer guy gets his excuses in first, which is a very – he's, he's a natural politician. We've not even asked him a question yet, and he gets his answer in before that. So L. Robert, we don't know. It could be Laurent Robert. We don't know. It could be Larry Robert. We, we don't know. Larry Robert, don't remember him. Um, the, but L. Robert, uh, his question is, if football ever does move on from fixed contracts – could clubs just substitute non-compete clauses? So maybe players could have the right to leave their contracts, but clubs could then attach a list of employers that they are banned from from joining for a period of time after termination of the contract. Which um, traditionally, for example, if you if you left a hairdresser's, you weren't allowed to work for another hairdressers within a three mile radius. And it's it, other professions used to indicate uh, had similar things in the seventies and eighties, which is sort. Of, no legal basis, but it was just, you know, it was to stop hairdressers taking their clients with them to another, another salon, basically. So it's it's an interesting alternative, Kieran, isn't it?
1: Yes, and it is certainly common in other industries as well. Um, what I think what Derek is, uh, sorry, well, what L is uh, referring to, is um, gardening leave because. We we certainly see that in the world of finance. Uh, if you've got senior bankers, you know, seen it in law firms as well, where if you've got, especially if you've got a, a big client portfolio, you can't join a competing comp- company for a period of twelve months. Um, also, if we take a look at football management, um, Mauricio Pochettino, uh, I think, wasn't able to join another English Premier League club when when Spurs sacked him as part of his settlement, and when we we do see. Um, references to this being made. Uh, in respect of the, the abolition of fixed-term contracts, i.e. You know, a footballer signs a four- or five-year deal and uh, the only way he can leave or she can leave is if somebody pays compensation. Ev- everything's up there from for negotiation. I don't think there's any desire for that, though, because we know that some clubs are selling clubs, and this would actually you know, potentially benefit um the the bigger clubs because if i had a promising yeah you know, if you got promising yeah you know, 18 19 year old and you say right we want to stop we want you to we're going to give you a pay rise um but under the terms of this new deal you're not allowed to join manchester united liverpool chelsea manchester city and so on you just refuse to take it and because you're not on a fixed term contract you can actually walk away for nothing so I'm, I'm not sure who would be the beneficiaries of this um you know the players what happens if they get an injury? You know, they they don't get the protection of having a fixed term contract. Um, the the current employer doesn't get the benefit of uh, developing talent with a view to being able to uh, you know, move that talent on and have that as part of a you know a sale model. You look at, you look at the success of Brentford. You know, they they've been part of the reason why they're in the Premier League was when they're in the championship, they were absolutely brilliant at spotting underrated talent. And and they used the sale proceeds of those players to, to improve the quality of their squad and so on. So could it happen? Yes, it, it, it's, it's a possibility. Um, Do I see it happening? No, because I I just don't see where the desire is coming from. Um, Certainly not necessarily from players. I can't see the benefit from clubs. Could FIFA decide it unilaterally with, Gianni Infantino in charge. Who knows? Um, but I think there would be a lot of pushback, and, and we've seen, um, in fact, this week. It's probably a story we'll actually cover on Thursday that uh, agents have had a, a partial victory uh, with regards to the the attempt by Infantino to to limit agents' commissions because uh, you know he he wants to uh, be he wants for them to be the pantomime villain in football uh, based on. Nothing apart from the fact that it's it's populist nonsense, mm. which gets gets you uh, a long yes, way these days, of
0: course. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, we're waiting till Thursday because we're still waiting for Infantino's response, which will be nonsense, I imagine. But we'll, we'll, we'll give it a few days to to, to, to um, absorb the full nonsense of his nonsensical answer. I won't, I won't name the person concerned, Kieran. But I, um, I managed to upset her once very high-profile Premier League manager who I got on quite well with at the time. Was, I, I bumped into him after uh, somewhere. I said, blimey, you're you, you coining it in for that gardening leave, aren't you? And he went, no, that ended two years ago. I've just not been offered a job anywhere else. And i oh, okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> Slightly awkward moment, which is why I say I once got on very well with him. And Dave Asher. <laughs> and, uh, I'm I'm very good at putting my foot in things here, which is why that Doctor Who episode last night terrified me. Doctor Who growing a giant foot, goodness! Dave Asher is uh, Lincoln City, and um, I never apologize. I never understood if it's Grantham Town or Grantham Town, so please. The people of Grantham or Grantham correct me on that. But Dave is a Lincoln City fan and a town of, let's go for Grantham Town. And Dave says, if I were to win or inherit a large sum of money, could I set up an investment trust to run Lincoln City and deposit, say, £15 million and use 10% of the dividend to invest and expand the fund and use the remaining dividends to fund Grantham Town to allow sustainable income streams? The reason I like this question so much, Kieran, is I, I love a question where people speculate about what they would do if they win a lot of money, which is basically what most football fans do. Uh, First thing I would do, of course, is to buy Crystal Palace and change the kit back to Claret and Blue. Um, And then I would try and explain to Ali why I'd spent all that money I'd won on buying Crystal (laughs) Palace just to change the kit.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, Well, Dave, um, we're not qualified Uh, financial advisors, myself or Kevin. So we have to be cautious (laughs) here before we we answer this question, just in case you you, you go, well, (laughs) yeah, it was was McGuire and Day that
0: persuaded me to do it, and (laughs) now I'm skiing again. Don't bring me into this. (laughs) I'm the the last person, anybody. (laughs)
1: Um, Yeah, there's absolutely nothing to to stop you funding uh, a football club or a series of football clubs as you see fit. Um, I don't think there'd be any conflict of interest, given where the two clubs are. Um, I've got to be honest; I'm not sure uh, how far 15 million pounds will get you. I mean, Lincoln City yeah, them, themselves received some further investment this week, and also what the terms and conditions would be with regards to decision making. So, could you do it as a, as a quasi gift? Um, certainly, you could. Yeah, you know, many many people do that. Um and in terms of giving the residual to Grantham Town, y- yes, uh, absolutely. It's, it's it's entirely down to you. Ultimately, it's your money. It's your decision. So yeah, it's uh, do if you win the lottery, don't 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 stick it in a football club. <laughs> it's really not a sensible <laughs> thing to do.
0: Um, another strong name coming up, Kieran. I mean, we've yeah. we've had Barclay Webster. Bartley Webster, the 1930s tap dancer. Now we've got a 1970s policeman. um, He's just two days away from retirement. So please, God, let nothing happen to him. (laughs) Uh, This question comes from Carter Gaunt. What a great name, that is. Carter Gaunt. Um, Carter says, I'm currently in the midst of a finance research project based on how FC Barcelona have used financial methods to manage their debt crisis. Um, in brackets, says, I'm still struggling for a title for the project. <laughs> I could I could think of a lot of them, but I don't think they'd be usable. For, <laughs> um, my question for Kieran is, when you analyse the financial performance of FC Barcelona, do you look at the accounts for the whole club, uh, including football, basketball, handball, etc., or just the first-team finances?
1: Right, uh, and Carter, th- this is a... Yeah, a very fair question because you know, Barcelona is a sporting club, which um, mm. is clearly dominated here by by football, but uh, it has a number of other sporting interests as well. What I would do here personally is as much as possible, I would use the, the football figures. And, and this is uh, prepared in what's referred to as a segmental report. So it is possible to strip out I think, as far as Barcelona is concerned, the wages, the the, the revenue from ticket sales, and so on, uh, between football and, and the other sports. But you can't do it for everything because you do have some shared resources, you know, such as your infrastructure resources, stadium. Um, you know, if if you're borrowing money, is is the money you borrowed, especially from a bank, can that all of that be allocated to the football club? And some of it be allocated to the football club? And then it becomes quite arbitrary. So as, as far as I can, um, I use the, the segmental analysis to look at the revenue generated by Barcelona. Because otherwise, I don't think, you know, one of the things we always do is we benchmark against other clubs. Now, you know, Manchester City doesn't have a basketball club. It doesn't have a handball club. It you know, doesn't do this, that and the other. It just does football. So you want to compare as best you can revenue and wages and some of the key metrics Um, to to other clubs in your industry you can't do that with regards to all of the financial data so I'd do it as far as I can with regards to just first team finances that's pretty tricky stroke impossible for the vast majority of clubs well that's that's actually a question we're coming back to a little bit later Um, so you know first of all defining first team you know, is it is it the is it the list of players that's given to La Liga? Does it therefore include the coach? Does it include the first team physio? Can you see we've actually got some fairly arbitrary decisions to be made, uh, and defining terms is is a spectacularly dull activity as somebody that sort of you know, trawls through documents um, as a as a hobby. Uh, but um, it, uh, it it can lead to huge inconsistencies when you've got different definitions of what we mean by first team or just football itself.
0: Yeah. So Barcelona couldn't, for example, Kieran, invest in the women's basketball team, the women's handball team or the academy for basketball and handball and then try and offset that against FFP for the football team?
1: That, that's correct. Though here we... We we go into that murky area as you know. What happens if you've got training facilities which are shared by the uh, of course the, yeah. the first team of the football team, but also the basket team, basketball team, and, and so on? And, and this is this is an issue not just with multi-sport organisations, but also multi-club organisations. If you're looking at the city football group, for example. If you've got a HR department, if you've got a finance department, if you've got a legal department, um they might say, Well, we've got eight football clubs, so let's split it evenly between eight clubs. Some people go, hold on, we're we sure Manchester City are possibly a little bit more occupied with legal issues than uh uh you know than than, than Melbourne City or New York City. So is that necessarily fair? Um and that gives scope for shenanigans and I'm not making any accusations with regards to Manchester City that they are guilty of any shenanigans but certainly as as, you know from from, it sounds really good as somebody that used to teach creative accounting this is one of the areas that I'd always be be demonstrating to students.
0: Hmm. I, I genuinely thought you were about to say as somebody who used to teach shenanigans but,
1: well, uh, there again, I, I yeah, think I cre-
0: and <laughs> creative accounting. Yeah, <laughs> um, as you so, as you so cleverly predicted, Kieran. Our penultimate question is about the, that similar issue, and it comes from Tom Elson. And Tom Elson says, "I'm a Burton fan, and I spent time recently looking at our latest accounts. What have you done to people, Kieran? Seriously, I'm so sorry. Just I'm so sorry normal, normal, nice people." Um, And Tom says the wage bill was just over £4 million. Would this be the entire wage bill for the business as a whole, or just the budget relating to the first team and staff? If it's the former, what percentage of the overall budget is likely to be related to the non-playing side? Right, Tom. um, the, The wage bill does
1: relate to everybody employed by the football club. Now, The vast majority of football clubs give no further granular detail as to the breakdown. However, there are a couple of exceptions. First of all, we have Cardiff City, um, and hats off to Cardiff. They very kindly um, do break down their costs between what they call uh, football staff and non-football staff. And for Cardiff, um, again, it will depend upon where they are in terms of the football pyramid, for Cardiff, it varied between 76 to 88% of the total wage bill was allocated to to football employees. Um, As they uh, ceased to have parachute payments, the the percentage tended to to decrease. So clubs in the Premier League have a much higher proportion of their total wage bill allocated to football because you're signing players who are on you know, 15 million pound a year contracts. And that doesn't matter. Yeah, that, that's an awful lot of staff who are on, you know, box standard wages. Um, whereas if you're in League One, you might be on, you know, 100, 200 grand a year. And, and you might only be on a factor of eight as opposed to 80 or 800 times that the wages of some of your, your colleagues ultimately at the same employer. Um, the other club where I pick up this data from is Rangers. Um, and for Rangers, they give... Um, the uh, the first team wages as a proportion of total revenue. And then I can triangulate that to say, well, how does it work out as a proportion of the total wage bill? So for Rangers, the first team wage bill was two thirds. It was 67% of the total wage bill. So what I do is people say, yeah, how do I work? I, I often put out data uh, showing the the average wage level of uh, of individual clubs, you know how much how much do I expect a first team to? Do? I I use a standard formula for that, sort of based on what I've picked up from looking at Rangers and Cardiff and uh, you know those clubs to form the basis. Because you know, ultimately I don't know. It it is guesswork, and I'll always use that. Uh, but it, but because it's a consistent formula that I use, I think it it shows sort of the relative benefits of working working at club a as opposed to club B and so on and there are idiosyncrasies and there are consistent inconsistencies simply because you might have at one club you've got a hundred people who are being employed by the football club itself and at another club um, those people would be uh, outsourced because you've got a third party employing them you know for things like stewarding and security and other bits and pieces uh,
0: you know i'm not good with numbers kieran but proportions and percentages were my nemesis they were or, they or, literally charlie brown's teacher just just a scrambled mess of numbers i'm um, talking of rangers kieran brings us nicely to our nice uh last question which is uh a Scottish-based question, and it comes from Anton Gallagher. And I think this is a very interesting question, actually, Kieran, and I'm fairly certain we haven't discussed this before. But Anton Gallagher says, Hamden Park has long been criticised up here as a poorly designed stadium for watching football. Although it holds great historical significance, I wonder if it's commercially viable. And what about other national stadiums? Are these shrewd investments or expensive monuments? Was that the sound of a bucket full of grit being thrown at the window there, Kieran? Yes, the Baroness is. Uh, it's, it's, it sounds like somebody's trying think, to get
1: your attention. Yes, yes. I think part of that phrase was, when are you coming out to help me? There was a word in there which I've not, uh, which was included in that comment. Um, but I think
0: you
1: Telling you with Uncle yes. Kevin. She she likes Uncle yes. Kevin. Tell her to join. She's your biggest fan. she, she she says, "You you are my therapist. You you are my master of chuckles oh, no. twice I'm a week." A so no, I'm I'm absolutely <laughs> delighted and show she uh, every every time we're we're, we're on the show. Um, so with regards to this, the stadiums are probably not making money. If we take a look at Wembley Stadium, the total cost was seven hundred and ninety eight million pounds um how often is it used during the year if we take a look at the principality stadium also known as the millennium stadium which was which was uh opened that cost 121 million pounds people go well you know why did wembley cost seven times as much as uh cardiff i, I know uh, you know, costs are a bit more expensive in london but i think it's just uh, you know a spectacular spectacular lack of control uh when it came to wembley um, and then, of course, we've got the Olympic Stadium, which also costs an absolute fortune. Um, and that certainly is, from a financial point of view, has been, been a disaster uh, for the UK um, and spectacularly good for, for uh, West Ham United. As far as Wembley is concerned, and this might be of interest to Everton fans, um, the, the Football Association uh, borrowed money and stuck £74 million worth of interest costs Onto the cost of Wembley Stadium, so if they can do it, um, why are Everton uh, unable to do it for some of the period? I appreciate that's down to sort of technical rules and so on. Um, so yeah, they they've, they they don't make money by themselves. To be fair to the FA, it is now making a profit, um, but that's probably more to do with uh, broadcasting rights than than Wembley Stadium itself. And they're, they're very very coy, the FA. In terms of the profitability um, of of Wembley, they do rent out the the facilities um, for hospitality, for conferences and so on. So it it is earning money um, five days a week. But um, there are, from an accountant's point of view, I I don't think it's particularly successful. Um, But there will be smoke streams and so on. Um, And they're also, of course, it was subsidised because it was given grants by DCMS, Sport England, the London Development Association. And people might be saying, well, why is a rich, uh, a very wealthy body such as the English FA uh, piling money into a a flagship stadium when uh, uh, grassroots football is is being or feels so abandoned? Mm. That's a separate topic.
0: Uh, yes it is and we're about to finish the pod Kieran so let's not go there because the pod will be an hour, another hour longer um, Hamden Park is slightly different though Kieran or slightly quirkier if you like it does have regular football played on it by a club doesn't it 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 does um, it doesn't
1: really pay the rent as such because you know clearly the the attendances are, are so low um, again I think that's more to do with the historical anomaly than anything else um, I've I, yeah, Wembley's Wembley is great for conferencing. Wembley is, yeah, is, is a decent stadium in which to watch football and, and other things. Um, yeah, there, there's a separate debate as to, you know, does the national stadium have to be the London stadium?
0: Mm. Yeah, I do. I, well, yes, I, even I agree with that. To be honest, um, it it shouldn't be. It should be more accessible than it is, Kieran. Or we mm. should be mm. playing England games at other other towns and cities, basically. If anybody from Queen's Park, by the way, is listening to this, um, I've always been interested in discussing how your finances work. So if you'd like to come on and have a general um, chit-chat, it'd be nice occasionally to talk to somebody from a club that's not in any trouble... We're just interested in them. So if anybody from Queen's Park wants to have a chat, please get in touch with producer guy and we'll, 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 we'll have you on. Thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod as well, that'd be very kind of you. It'd get you access to our chat community and our regular quizzes. I think we've got a Christmas one coming up, I guess, or New Year's one. Uh, You can do all that by going to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. As we've been mentioning, we are Kieran and I are going to be in Hastings on December the 13th for an event with East Sussex Libraries. It's sold out now, unfortunately, but there is a waiting list, which um, if you wish to put your name on that waiting list in case somebody pulls out because it's a bit cold, and no one's gritted the streets of Hastings like the community-minded Baroness has done, um, you can do that by going uh, to the link in the show notes below and registering to go onto the waiting list. And if you'd like to buy our book or one of our other books or get yourself a Price of Football t-shirt, you can find details on that website, priceoffootball.com. We'll be back on Thursday with our regular news pod, where the first story may be that Kieran has been hit over the head with a gritting shovel. Um, but in the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran McGuire for his customary farewell. Well, thank you everybody for
1: all the support for the show, and for all the different means, um, and we are we're genuinely Kevin and I are both fans. Yeah, you know, I, I fell in love with reading due to being able to go to a library on on a weekly basis. So you know, it's a chance for us to put something back. We're absolutely delighted to be to be uh, asked to do so um there, there's various other ways you can support the show one of which is to give us a review by going on to your app you to, also if you want to review the book um on, on amazon uh, I know a few people have said some nice words about it that always helps uh, us in terms of the algorithms there it doesn't matter by all accounts what you say as far as the review is concerned so you could even say you would rather have the show presented by Jake Burns of Stiff of the Fingers, as I was listening to Wasted Life this morning, um, and Andreas, the racist taxi driver from Athens, who, I think it's fair to say, is a man that doesn't like being
0: quiet. <laughs> That's a sitcom sketch there, isn't it, Cairn? Jake Burns yes. and Andreas? Hello, Smudge. All right, bye, everybody. <laughs> bye. The price of football. I suck football.